I'm alive because he lives. I was dead, but now I'm alive because he lives. I was singing that, knowing it's the story of my life, the story of the Bible. For those who've trusted Christ, it's, it's what really defines our lives as Christians as fundamentally as you can. I was dead, now I'm alive because he lives. Present tense, lives. But I was realizing how strange that may sound to some of you who may not be Christians, may not be living your life in light of this awareness that there is a kind of life that's only true of someone who is alive because Jesus lives. It may sound really strange to you to say that there are some people who are alive physically but are dead. But the Bible actually describes that as the condition all human beings are born into. That we're not alive to God. We don't have a kind of spiritual life that is Godward, that is God-loving, that is God-pleasing, that is God-worshipping. And that we then have the capacity by God's power and grace to actually exercise those desires and hungers and expressions. That there's something qualitatively different about someone the Bible calls a new creature in Christ. Or someone who has found new life in Christ. Or someone who's born again. Someone who's been made alive. That's the description of a Christian. It's not just someone who does Christian things or says Christian things or signs their name on a statement of belief, of Christian belief, or goes to church or does certain moral things. No, there is something radical and radically different about someone who has turned from sin and self in saving faith in Christ. The Bible says the only reason that even happens is because God has removed a dead heart and replaced it with one that's alive to God. Now, This, this may sound almost insulting to you if, if that's not your description of your life. Well, it's not insulting because we're all in that condition before God's grace changes us in this way. And so we want to continue our series here in the resurrection and the Easter Sunday we celebrated last week, we wanted to continue. We just didn't want to stop celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And somebody pointed out to me that today is, is uh, Eastern Orthodox resurrection. So we're even still in step with a lot of Christians around the world who are doing this. But we, we really had this sense of, oh, the resurrection of Jesus and celebrating it is such a good thing. Let's not just let it be one Sunday. Let's continue it and let's do our best to help all of us understand what this fact of history means for our daily lives. See, that's, that's the trouble. It's one thing to say that the resurrection is a fundamental, if not the fundamental belief of Christians, that Jesus, because of who he is and what he did, and his accomplishment on our behalf is risen from the dead. That's what we've been singing this morning. Jesus is alive, present tense. And that's changed everything. That is not just a doctrine to be believed. That is a daily reality to live out, a power to be experienced. It couldn't be more important and relevant to our daily lives that Jesus is alive. 
And so that's what we want to do. I'm going to start in 1 Peter chapter 1 in this series. So if you'll open your Bibles there to 1 Peter 1. And I want us to realize that we are born again to a living hope because Jesus rose from the dead. That we have a completely new identity because Jesus rose from the dead and we now are partakers of that life that he expressed when he conquered death. That's where you are. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 is what we'll read. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. It's kind of hard to find. It's near the back. If you go to Revelation and then go left, sort of back toward the heart of the Bible, you'll get to it. There it is. Um, 1 Peter 1. Let's listen to the Apostle Peter as he's inspired by the Spirit of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Binthia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pause right there and realize what a wonderful hope Peter has for us as we read his letter. It's the same hope he had for this dispersed group of believers in Jesus spread around the world that he's writing to in different churches who are being persecuted, who are no doubt discouraged and weary and needing grace and peace in their daily lives. So if you've come this morning for grace and peace and encouragement, not just a meager rationing but multiplied to you, well, it's a good morning to be here. I bet you are like I am, and every time I get up and come to gather with God's people, I'm coming for some more hope. I'm coming for another portion from God of peace, of grace, of what I need to have patient endurance in this life that is fraught with dangers, toils, and snares, and death, and pain, and suffering, and weariness, and weakness. I am like, I'm sure many of you are feeling much like these people that Peter's writing to, that he wants grace and peace to be multiplied to. That's not just something that happens when you become a Christian. That's something he's hoping. These are Christians. These are believers in Jesus. And he's hoping they have a daily experience of grace and peace. And as we'll see, hope because of Jesus. And that's what we're after, and that's what we get in these passages. And how do we get it? How do we get it? Well, he's already given us a massive understanding of what that means. It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. In other words, his death, his blood on our behalf, offering a sacrifice of atonement for us is what brings us grace and peace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then let's look at what verses 3 through 5 have for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is the stuff of our hope. That's the stuff of our faith right there. That's as good as it gets. If that doesn't encourage you, I don't have anything else for you. If you don't find encouragement in that, you must either not be somebody who's trusting in Jesus, but if you are, that is what you need. That's what you need far more than anything else this morning, to know who God is, what He's done for us in Christ, and who we are when we've trusted Jesus. That's it. And the first thing I want you to notice is how he starts in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It all begins with a heart to bless God. That may sound strange to you because when we sneeze, we say bless you or God bless you. And so we've sort of lost a sense of what that means. But to say, bless God, bring blessing to his heart. Bring, offer praise to him. Offer gratitude to him. Offer faithfulness to him so that he is delighting in that faithfulness from us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we are going to find the grace and peace multiplied to us in God, it needs to start with God. It needs to fundamentally be all about God. We can actually turn an effort to find our identity in God into something entirely about us. And that's not what we're talking about. And this is a danger. That we can talk about, I need to find my identity in Christ. I need to find my meaning in who I am. I I need to find security and significance in all the things I need. And it can be nothing but a Christian-sounding self-help effort. And I see that happening all the time, especially in the American church. That it's all about me. And God becomes just a means for me to get what I want. And this has got to be all about God. I love John Piper's title for his book, God is the Gospel. I don't even think I've read the book, but the title's good enough for me. God is the Gospel. That's what this is about. God's the Gospel. It's all about Him. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please don't think we worship God, we praise God, we bring delight to His heart because He's lacking anything in Himself. No, He's independent. He has no unmet needs. He doesn't need anyone or anything outside of himself to be who he is and be everything he intends to be for us. But we are in relationship with him. This God who doesn't have unmet needs, nevertheless, enters into relationship with us that's meaningful, that he compares with a marriage. And he relates to us. And our sin grieves him and our faithfulness brings delight to his heart. Our offering of praise we've been offering this morning delights the heart of our creator. And this is about him. If this isn't about him, it's not Christian and it's not actually going to give us the lasting grace, peace, and hope and joy that he intends for us. If it's just about us. Look at how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2.9, just one page over. Look, 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
Now, that is a wonderful description of who we are as God's people. We are a holy race, a a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession. What a wonderful thing to realize about ourselves. But please don't stop memorizing the verse there. Look what's next. That, so that, what's the goal? What's the purpose? That, not just so you can feel good about yourself, but why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, you are someone, if you've trusted Jesus, if you're a new creature in Christ who's been called out of darkness and are now in his marvelous light, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's who you are now. But so that your life can now be changed to a Godward life from a self-focused life. Oh, don't turn the Christian message into something that's all ultimately about you. And if you're sitting there saying, oh, this is kind of demoting, you know, I'm not an end of all things, no. You're not. God is. And the very best thing for you is to be swept up into that truth. To know beyond the shadow of a doubt that when you make your life all about God, that's the very best thing for you. Don't turn the Christian message into something that's ultimately about you ever. Oh, we're part of his grand and glorious self-glorifying story. How great is that? Yeah, we're all a bunch of bit players in this wonderful story he's telling and glorifying him. But how awesome that you get to be a bit player in the grand and glorious story that glorifies your creator. That's what this is about. And then we get about with our Christian lives and it stays all about him. It's not just to his glory that he saved us. It's to his glory that he's saving us from the power of sin every day of our lives. It's to his glory that we do simple things as Christians just in the way we live on a day-to-day basis in our relationships. Look what Peter says in chapter four, verse seven. Listen to this description of the Christian life, practically speaking, relationally speaking, on a daily basis. Listen to 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is is at hand. Jesus is coming back. Judgment day is coming. It's all coming to an end. It doesn't go on and on forever. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, isn't that a beautiful description of the Christian life? This other-focused, self-sacrificial, generous, self-controlled, loving, earnestly from the heart life. Oh, and I can't tell you what a joy it is to be part of a church family like this where that is so clearly how we're living, not perfectly. Always have plenty of room to grow, but so many displays of everything I just read in this church family. But living that way, As much as it is to be a blessing, to be a blessing to others and to be blessed by this, what's the goal of it all, remember? What's the purpose of it all? 
Look, in order that, halfway through verse 11, in order that, so that, what's the goal? What's the purpose? In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then Peter bursts into praise here. He can't help it. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. I just love that. Peter does it. He just did that in in verse 3, chapter 1. Let's be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He can't help but burst in the praise. You may have heard me talk about one of my mentors, Robert Coleman. Robert Coleman walked through his life with such an intense sense of the presence of God that he never felt the need to say, let's pray. He would just start praying. It It took some time to get used to it. You'd think he was talking to you, and then you'd realize, oh, he's talking to God seamlessly from talking to me. And he would do the same thing with worship. You'd be dry with him and he'd just start pray, worshiping, singing his heart out. And it's a little jarring at first until you get used to it. But he had such a sense of the presence of God and such a heart of gratitude that he didn't even have time to say, why don't we pray or why don't we sing? He just would start praying and singing. And that's what Peter's modeling for us here. He, he's saying, let's, let's go to prayer. No, he, he just starts praying. He starts worshiping God. I love that there in chapter 4. He can't help it. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, he maintains a God-centered, worshipful attitude and posture and expression as he's writing these great truths of the faith. And a God-centered worship needs to be woven through everything in our lives. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the second thing I want you to notice there in chapter 1, verse 3. We're praising, we're glorifying, not just a generic concept of God. We're not just worshiping a God who I get in touch with through meditation or even prayer. Or it, it, This God is a specific, defined God. This is not just God in general, however you want to define him. This is a very specific God who leads us to this kind of life. It's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is here. It's very important we recognize this. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God we saw in the previous verses, right? This all happens according, verse 2, to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling of his blood. Do you hear? That's what Christians call the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. And what we're finding here is you don't find life and hope and grace and peace multiplied to you with a generic version of God. With a version of God however you think of Him. Or the God that's easier for you to worship. Or even the God of a tradition you may have grown up in. No, this is the God that is distinctively the God of the Bible who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who sent His Son to take away the sins of the world. The one who has always been Father, Son, and Spirit, and when we see Him reveal Himself and redeem the world and create the world and judge the world, it's never just Father or Son or Spirit. It's always Father, Son, and Spirit perfectly working together with distinction and perfect unity of nature and unity of purpose and equal glory. This is the God we find as the source of this life we're talking about. I know this doesn't sit well with a lot of us in these days, but it's never easy to have a definition of God 
that excludes other definitions. And anytime you have a definition of anything, it excludes other definitions. I know we don't even think that way these days. You can just think any way you want and it's all equally true. That's just never been true. This God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus couldn't put it more plainly than he does in John 5, 23. Listen to what he says. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Look what he says. Um, John does in 1 John 2. No one, ever, uh, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Jesus says in Luke 10, the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. It couldn't be more clear. This isn't just a, a one of the ways to God Jesus offers. Jesus could not be more clear with that. You can't say you're buds with Jesus if you don't hold to his view of the exclusivity of getting to God through him. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And I know this is a hard thing in our society where we think we all get to decide what's true and real for ourselves, but this is an understanding of God that is clearly defined by God himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father sends the Son. The Son joyfully submits to the will of the Father and joyfully comes to lay down his life for us. And the Spirit is the one who makes that all a reality and brings it home to our hearts. And so this is not just some generic God. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's doing these things for us. And what's he doing for us? Well, verse 3, he does according to his great mercy. I love that. His mercy, his kindness toward us when we're in misery and distress. Oh, I'm in misery and distress a lot and people all around me are in misery and distress and I need a God who comes near to me, doesn't care for me from a distance doesn't shoot me a text, but moves right in next to me. He takes residence, God does, in the sun, and he cares for us. He's merciful to us. He rolls up his sleeves and gets his hands dirty and bloody for us. That's who he is. That's how merciful he is. It's great mercy. God's not stingy. Get rid of that idea. It's the first lie we were told in the garden that God's cheap. Oh, you better go fend for yourself, Adam and Eve. You better go fend for yourself, you right now, because God is lacking something you need for him to be. No, he doesn't. He's got unlimited resources and unlimited compassion and mercy and grace. His great mercy leads him to provide what we need. Do you see it? His great mercy. And what else do we see? His great mercy, mercy causes him to cause us to be born again. His great mercy caused us to be born again. Being a new creature in Christ, being made new in him, does not happen because you somehow manufactured that new ability, that new reality. No, to be made born again, caused by him, he does it. He initiates it. Only his power could make me new. I was dead and I'm alive. I was in darkness and I'm in light. I couldn't fix that problem on my own until you realize that that result is only because of his great mercy and his unlimited power. You won't get the gospel. It again will be something I do, I manufacture, I accomplish. That is not the gospel. It's grace, 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 and more grace. 
And if you think grace is what God does 95% and I take it the rest of the way, you don't understand grace. It's not of ourselves that anyone can boast. It's by God's grace. And if we don't get that, we don't get the gospel. It's still about us. He causes this to happen. And what is it he causes to happen? We are born again to a living hope. Who was alive in the 70s? Yeah, about half of us, I guess, yeah. It's a great generation. Who had bell bottoms? They're kind of back in sort of an ironic way, I think. No, um, well, 70s, I, I remember, I was a kid in the 70s riding my bike with a sissy bar and a banana seed, and I made it, I added like three sections to make it an almost unrideable chopper. Oh, man, my bike was kicking, let me tell you. And I did, I had this bike, and and. It was just this amazing, it was so, but the 70s, I remember as a kid in the 70s, I was a Christian. I sat, and my mom read the Bible to me, and at an early age, I realized I needed a Savior, and Jesus was that Savior, and then anytime Billy Graham was one, on one of the three channels we had, my mother would sit my brother and me down, and we would watch that whole thing, and it was hard. Beverly, George Beverly Shea, and I'm falling asleep, and she's saying, wake up, and, and I'm listening to Billy Graham, and I am, I'm, and, and it was just amazing, but I remember, I remember Jimmy Carter, my mother was very unhappy about him becoming president, but it was wild, because he said, I'm a born-again Christian, you remember? And that born-again Christian phrase became this big thing. I can't even remember people saying to me, you're not one of the born-again Christians, are you? I've been calling, oh, you're a born-againer. Like, it becomes this phrase, right? And Billy Graham, uh, uh, Billy Graham preached that, but Jimmy Carter sort of made it famous. And now born again, and Christians gravitated to it because we felt a need to distinguish ourselves from cultural Christians. We felt a need to distinguish ourselves from, from those who said they were Christians but didn't even believe things like Jesus rose from the dead. And so we felt a need to add some phrases and adjectives before Christian, right? I'm a born-again Christian. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I'm a committed Christian. I'm a devoted Christian. I'm a Christian who actually means it. I, we, we came up with all these terms. And I can remember not long after born again started being used by Jimmy Carter, not liking it because it became this pejorative, you're born again. But people thought Jimmy Carter made it up. Jesus made it up. Jesus made it up. Go to John 3. I'll show you. It wasn't the peanut farmer. It was, which is what Jimmy Carter was. Did somebody moan about that? that well, that's not a slam. He proudly would say that about himself. All right. Let's get, look at John 3. John 3, watch. Jesus meets with this religious leader, Nicodemus, who breaks from the ranks of the Pharisees who were opposed to Jesus and wants to meet with him. He's got some questions. Yes, he does it at night, but he's showing some, some interest here. And he, he meets with Jesus, and listen to what Jesus said to him in John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, realize he's talking to a religious leader who's got all kinds of religious credentials. He's got an impressive resume of religious practice and religious knowledge. And Jesus is saying, no, no, to be in the kingdom... That stuff isn't what does it. It takes something miraculous that God causes. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, 
He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus understandably says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. This isn't something manufactured by us. This is something God miraculously, by his power, brings about in us. Are you born again? Are you born again? Jesus wants to ask you that question. I didn't ask, are you religious? I didn't ask, did you walk an aisle and sign a card at a harvest crusade? I didn't ask that. I I didn't ask, do you know lots of Bible verses or go to church regularly? Know all the right answers or most of them to the questions about the Bible? I didn't ask if you remember saying a prayer where you asked Jesus into your heart, which probably isn't the best way to describe what happens. Are you born again? If that's where you go, well, I walked an aisle, I raised a hand, I signed a card. I'm, I'm actually part of this church. I, I was even baptized. No, we do those things because we're born again. They don't make us born anew. They don't make us new creatures in Christ. If I asked you the question, are you born again, and then asked you why if you said yes, what we need to say is, Yes, I'm born again because I'm alive to God. I remember being dead and now I'm alive to him. I have a Godward desire, a Godward hunger. I wake up in the morning and although my life can be filled with inconsistency and failure and sin, big picture, I have a heart for God, a Godwardness, a love for God, a desire for him to be to know him, to be for him to be glorified in my life more than anything else. That's defining my life now. I was dead and I'm alive now. I'm Godward. I'm alive to God. That needs to be how we answer that question. I have a living hope now. I have a living faith now. I have spiritual power I didn't have before. I have victory over sin I could have never had before. I'm alive spiritually with spiritual appetites, spiritual hungers, spiritual desires, and a God-given spiritual ability to pursue him so those desires are met in him. I was dead and I'm alive. I love him. I trust him. I hope in him. I follow him. The proof of being born again is not what you may have done when you were eight, but the reality in your life right now. That's it. Are you alive to God? Does that define your life? Not as a religious thing you do or merely creeds you have a mental assent to, but as a living reality in your life because the fact is a true believer, someone who's been born again, has been born again to a living hope and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has raised you to new life and is at work in your life right now every day of your life. And even though we can lack a filling of the Spirit and an empowering by the Spirit and an illumination of the Spirit and a conviction of the Spirit at times, big picture, the story of our lives is we're alive to God. And he's made us that way. We're no longer dead. And that's what it means to be born again to a living hope. 
He brings this all about. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once walked with all the rest of mankind, but God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. That's awesome. Together with Christ, that with Jesus walking out of a tomb, I walk out with him. That's what it's saying. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, I walk out with him. And now, today, live in newness of life. And that's the experience of my life. And not only that, but one day when I die physically, it won't be the end of the story. And we're heading there in the series, but then we'll walk out finally in our resurrection following in his train. It's an awesome thing we're acknowledging today, but that's the truth of our lives. That describes our lives now. If we're true believers, our lives should be so radically different because we're alive in him. And it all comes through his resurrection, the deliverance from sin and death he brings. This hope is sure. This Jesus was raised by God and therefore we have a seal of approval on what he did and who he was and he has won the day in his resurrection. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. Our best friend is not dead. Our great patron and helper, our omnipotent savior is not lying in a tomb today. He lives, he ever lives. No sound of greater gladness can be heard in the Christian church than this. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. That's the truth of the gospel. And it's historically validated. The reason we're sitting here this morning is because despairing, discouraged, hopeless apostles had their lives completely changed when they saw the risen Christ. That's the only reason you can explain the reality of the church. It's historically true. You can't argue against it. You can decide things like that don't happen, so I don't believe it. But that's very different than saying it didn't happen. Jesus is alive, and that's the truth we've come to. And he's still alive. Look, he expands on it in verses 20 through 25 in 1 Peter 1. Look, he, Jesus, 1 Peter 1.20, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's the truth. He raised Jesus from the dead and our faith and hope and grace and mercy and everything we need are now in him because he won. He won. He defeated the greatest enemies of sin and death and he won and he lives right now, right now to intercede for you. Listen to Romans 8. Who is to condemn? You feel condemned this morning? Who is to condemn? That's a rhetorical question. We should all say, no one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is, present tense, interceding for us, ministering on our behalf before the throne and in our lives every day. Hebrews 7, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, as much as you could ever need, those who draw near to God through him. Since he, listen, always lives to make intercession for them. That's why John says in 1 John 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Listen to Burkhoff. It's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we're negligent in our prayer life. 
He's presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which are not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we're not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us. Though we do not notice it, he is praying that our faith will not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. That's true right in this moment because Jesus is alive as our great high priest who continues to minister for us based on his completely finished work on the cross and validated in his resurrection. Listen to Robert Murray McShane. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. <laughs> if I could hear Christ, could you imagine if I went over to this door and I heard Jesus praying for me? If you, you went over to that door and on the other side, Jesus was praying for you? Well, I, we wouldn't fear a million enemies either. And McShane says, but space makes no difference. Distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus is interceding for you. I'm so glad when people pray for me. And I'm so grateful for that. But when I know Jesus is praying for me, now that's confidence. And what this leads to is an inheritance. Listen to this inheritance in this description. This inheritance is, verse 4, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Oh, is that awesome? Is that awesome? You know, life gets really hard when you live in a fallen world where the second law of thermodynamics is always obvious. If you don't know what that is, it means we never regain energy. It's just always, we're deteriorating, we're disintegrating, we're falling apart all the time. And if you don't believe it, buy a house. <laughs> we never, I, we lived in apartments that came with my job ever since we got married. I lived with my parents before that. And so until we bought a house in 99, I never had, I got on the phone, hey, something's leaking. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to fix it. But I'm, I'm leaving, so come on over. And, and I would. That's how my life. And then I bought a house. It was a foreclosure. It was a mess. And, and it, we put it, work into it, and we got it looking pretty good and fixed up. And I thought, well, there, now we can get back on with life. No. No. As soon as you fix something, it starts falling apart immediately. Immediately. I'm looking at some of you. Some of you people have jobs based on this fact. Right? Got great job security, it will fall apart. And so it's easy to think even this inheritance we have is like that. Like a peach that's got a shelf life of two days. No, this is imperishable, unfading. It's never going to deteriorate. When you get there, it'll be everything God says it will. And how about this news? Not only is that true, you will get there. You'll be guarded by God on your way there through faith for that salvation. Not only will that inheritance be everything God says it's going to be, you're actually going to get to it. I need both to be true. It's one thing to say the inheritance is enough, but will I get to it? He says, yeah, when you're born again to a living hope, that hope is alive, and God's still at work in your life through Christ like we just said, and you now will get home. Hey, imagine somebody told you, I have the most incredible mansion that's been given to you. I mean, just you imagine what the most amazing mansion. I'm thinking of the house used for Mr. Darcy's house in Pride and Prejudice in the movie that we and the Clarks actually got to visit once. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what I'm imagining. Incredibly groomed lawns and, and rooms and this beautiful mansion and, and uh, lined paths to walk down with roses and a big pond just for walking around in the middle. Tally would stock it with bass and... and <laughs> Whatever. And, and, and think, speaking Italian, others of you say, oh, let me add this to it. You've got a complete staff to keep it clean and fix it up all the time. And there's a six-car garage with every kind of car that would be your dream car. And for those of you who don't love Mr. Darcy's house, uh, let's say there's a place you can go off to in one of the hundreds of acres this comes with, which is this beautiful little cabin with smoke from a fire coming out of the chimney with fishing poles stocked there and everything you could ever want. And, and you're provided for. You have nothing to worry about. And so you get in your beat-up little car on your way to your new inheritance. And a mile before, it breaks down. And you get out of your Ford Escort wagon like I used to have. One guy said to me, hey, can we help you get a new car? It doesn't look like that one's going to get home. <laughs> and you get out of that car because it breaks down, and you realize, I got a mile before I get to my inheritance. And you walk the mile, and you, you get a few steps down, and you start saying, I'm getting kind of tired. I kind of like that car. I sort of want to go back to it. This is a bummer. This is tough. I'm not sure where the... I can't see the mansion. I can't see the inheritance. I know it's been told it's true, but I can't see it right now, and I'm struggling to even fall down and maybe hurt your arm, and there's struggle on the way, and you got a mile to go, and you're actually thinking about going back. You're wanting your beat-up Ford Escort wagon. You're, you're wanting all that was in your past when you've got that inheritance waiting who would whine about that? No, if you know, look, if I knew that was waiting and I had a mile to go, even though the road may be twisted with, with, with some getting detoured now and then or some struggles along the way or some weariness along the way, oh, if I knew what was waiting and I was sure of it, I'm walking with boldness and confidence and joy and hope and I'm delighting and I'm singing along the way. I'm not seeing this thing as a bad journey. I can't believe I have. No, I'm running down that road. I can't wait to get there because my inheritance is sure and I'm going to get there and most of all, the one who provides it for me is there. The creator of all things good He's the source of all of it, and that's how we should go through the Christian life, not complaining and grumbling and discouraged and anxious and despairing, but knowing our inheritance awaits, and it's going to be everything he promised, and we're going to get there, so look out, here we go. That's how we, as God's people, should be going through this life. That's not to say there aren't difficulties along the way, but our inheritance is sure, and our getting there is sure because we have a new hope and being born again to a living hope because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And he's with us every step of the way. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live victoriously in this life, not discouraged and downhearted and anxious and depressed and distracted by the things of the world and think we need more toys and idols to make us happy when we have you and your incredible promises for us that we are partakers of now and will be one day fully. Help us to be filled with hope and joy and peace and confidence and boldness on the way and help us to help one another when some of us forget that. 
We pray in Jesus' mighty name, who rose from the dead. Amen.